So let's, uh, let's jump in. We have a couple more weeks left of our series in Judges. And then, uh, yeah, looking forward to Easter as we get back together in person and we get to celebrate um, the resurrection together um, and what that looks like and the new life that we, we have in Christ. And so that's, that's going to be exciting to actually be together and celebrate that. And um, last week, if you remember, Tim did a great job just uh, showing us the real story of Gideon. Uh, I know there's so many kind of like hero stories about Gideon and we do interesting things with that passage and that text. Uh, But Tim did a really good job just kind of getting underneath the surface level to show us kind of really what the false humility and and the self-centeredness that we saw in uh, a figure like Gideon. Um, And particularly though, how much we got to see even more than that, God's crazy patience with a Gideon and uh, in translation with with you and I. Um, And this week we actually get to what is at at a literary level anyway, the climax of the book of Judges, and not in a good way. (laughs) It's the climax as far as the tension goes. Everything that's happened in Judges kind of comes to this climactic figure that we see this week in Abimelech. And it's a major shift actually in the cycle. So the author has been setting us up and kind of getting us into this regular rhythm and this cycle of uh, Israel turning away from God to idols and then God raising up a deliverer and coming and rescuing them. But this particular passage and this figure shows us a very different cycle, a very different shift altogether. And it's Abimelech who is the son of Gideon and one of Gideon's concubines. So let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, again, even with some of the restrictions and difficulties and challenges and tensions that we all are experiencing at varying levels uh, right now in this season, we're just so thankful that we can still uh, gather in some way, be together to have our eyes and our heart and our mind uh, just focused on you as brothers and sisters in community. And so we're just thankful for that, that that still is such a privilege and an honor to be able to uh, come to your word and that you are a God who uses your word to speak and change and call and encourage. And we just ask that you would do that this morning in us and it would be done for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're gonna... Meet me in Judges 9. I'm gonna read the first few verses. It's a long passage. So we're just gonna read bits and pieces here and I'll try to pull it all together for us. But Judges 9, starting in verse one. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, which is now the name that we're using for Gideon because we're not using Gideon anymore, right? So it stresses his idolatry. The son of Jerubal went to Shechem to his mother's relatives. To the, so his mom, the concubine, went to his, his mom's side of the family and said to the whole clan, Hey, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you or that one would? So he just comes and goes, is 70 kings better than one, right? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. We're relatives. We're, we're, blood is thicker than water. We're related. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts, that's important, their hearts were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, well, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berit, with, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows. I love that. He just hired thugs who followed him. And when he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, all 70 of them, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone, But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left and he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. All right, pause there. So we see a very quick, fast-paced story starting in the character of Abimelech. And we see obviously family tension and dysfunction happening here in Gideon's uh, next generation. Uh, But notice a couple things. Tim pointed this out last week. Abimelech's name, if you remember what it means, Abimelech's name means my father is king. My dad is the king. So it's very strange that we heard Gideon kind of almost faint this false humility of like, no, no, I'm not gonna be king over you. The Lord is king. But really it wasn't genuine at all. Then he goes and names his son, my father is king. So talk about kind of narcissism and stuff coming back, right? 
where, where Abimelech now is a reflection of the same pride and the same self-sufficiency and the same lack of reliance upon the Lord that we saw in Gideon, his father. And notice here with Abimelech, he is not raised up by God like the rest of the, the book that we've seen to this point. He is not appointed king over the people or judge. He appoints himself as king. And then he goes and funds his military campaign using, it says, the 70 pieces of silver from Baal worship. So from the pagan temple, he goes and funds his, his military campaign and capitalizes on the false worship and idolatry of his own people to go and fund his own effort. And notice that anytime, we've, we talked about this throughout the series about numbers. When, when we see numbers pop up in narrative, it's always more significant than just telling us, like recording facts for us. But if you see there's 70 brothers and then there's 70 pieces of silver and then there's one brother who escapes and then there's one stone that we see Abimelech used to slaughter all of his brothers, right? And that stone is gonna actually come back at the end of the story and we'll see how it ends. But it's a beautifully written story. This is by far, at, in the, at the literary level, one of the most genius narratives of all the Old Testament. Like the, the significance and the way that the author has pulled everything together for us is, is beautiful. And we lose some of that in English for sure, but it's just amazing to see the artistry that happens here in this story as well as we get to hear this very bad story, but it's beautifully told and beautifully done. And the main point of what we're gonna see in this text, the main thing that we cannot miss is that in the rest of the book of Judges, what we have seen is that when God's people turn from God, oppression comes from the outside. But this time, oppression comes from within. Right here, the nations are not Israel's problem, but Israel is Israel's problem. And we see a big peak in the tension of the whole book of Judges. And in Abimelech, we almost see this, this complete condensed version of everything that has been wrong with individual judges in the book is now wrong and wrapped up in one judge, self-appointed judge, self-appointed king in Abimelech. He sets himself up as the king. So the author wants to highlight for us that and set him up as the anti-king. He sets him up as the anti-judge. And if you remember... When Judges was written down, right? We started this at the beginning of the series. I'll remind you. When Judges was written down, it was because it was during the exile. And it was because Israel was trying to make sense of how they ended up getting kind of spit out by the land. That they're not actually in the homeland that was promised to them in the covenant to Abraham. So they're trying to make sense of the fact that they don't have a king, they don't have a land, and they're in exile. And the author is doing that specifically in Judges to hold up a mirror to the people of Israel to say, see what happens? Like, like see what happens when we set up kings for ourselves in the place of God? See what happens when we go after leaders because of charisma or, or education or, or influence or, or whatever it is, or accolades, instead of actually keeping God chief and sovereign over our lives? See what happens when we make ourselves sovereign and put ourselves in the place of God. And so Judges is this long narrative answer to that very disturbing question for Israel. And it's like, how did we get here? And the author of Judges shows up and says, I'll show you exactly how we got there. And in this chapter in particular, looking at Abimelech, there are tons of parallels that we can miss easily, but there's so many parallels between Abimelech and his father Gideon. He is a chip off the old block in all the worst ways possible. I'll share a couple with you just so you see them and you know that they're there. But really what the author's trying to do through these is that Abimelech reverses any good that comes from Gideon. Because remember, there was some good stuff that happened during, during Gideon's life. But now his son comes along and reverses all of it. So whereas Gideon starts with a mention of the covenant between God and Israel, we see Abimelech's story start with Israel's covenant to Baal. Whereas Gideon reluctantly leads when God asks, he does, he does finally get there, but he's reluctant, he's hesitant. Abimelech eagerly pushes himself into leadership. Whereas Gideon was appointed to tear down an altar to, to Baal, Abimelech slaughters his own blood, his own brothers on a stone, mimicking a sacrifice to Baal. Really raw. Gideon, whereas Gideon is clothed by God's spirit, 
Abimelech is actually sent a distressing spirit by God, or in some translations, an evil spirit by God to ruin his plans, to disrupt the plans that he has. And whereas Gideon is victorious, ultimately, Abimelech is not, and he is ultimately defeated. So in, in one way, whereas Gideon flirts with kingship, but kind of says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not really going to be your king. Abimelech shows up and claims kingship by force and arrives on the scene and says, I am your king. In other words, what was under the surface in Gideon is now center stage in Abimelech. And so everything comes to this tension, this, this climactic point in Abimelech in the story of Judges. So we kind of reach the mountaintop now and the rest of Judges is gonna be this denouement, just kind of this, this um, unraveling further into what we need to see. And this story of Abimelech, we can't read the whole thing, but it's just really a long story with a dizzying amount of violence, of conspiracy, of, of self aggrandizement of, of rebellion. It's just him groping for power, selfishness and manipulation. And he goes to any length, all lengths to get what he wants. He is completely drunk on power and goes after it at, at, at everyone else's expense, including his own people. And if you notice in this text, that also includes his own brothers. And now Shechem is a significant place in scripture and a significant place in Judges because it's very significant. Some commentators and theologians call Shechem actually like the centerpiece of Israel's spiritual life. And it's the first, it's the first place where God shows up and appears to Abraham. That happens at Shechem. It's also the first place in the promised land when they enter Canaan to have an altar built to the Lord. So there's actually something commemorated by being in Shechem as a covenant to the Lord. And then later, it's also where Joshua first worships with Israel once they've entered the promised land. So Shechem is kind of this very, very central place, the spiritual center of Israel at the time. And why this is highlighted is because it stresses for us how brazen Abimelech's rebellion is. One commentator said that this would be the equivalent in the U.S., of them reinstituting chattel slavery and segregation specifically in Montgomery, where much of the, the call for civil rights came out of. That would just be like a big spit in the face of everything that has been worked so hard to get rid of, that, that this is what Abimelech's doing. He's almost intentionally going back and reversing all of the progress, all of the health, all of the unity, spiritual unity that Israel has enjoyed. And he's going back and just spitting in the face of all of that. So you should feel that. It's, it's a very, very raw thing that we're feeling and seeing in this text. And then as this dizzying pace is going, we have this really, really interesting scene popped into the middle where it's almost like this interlude. So picture like, you know, a good movie action scene and then all of a sudden switches to this story being told. And we, we were hinted at it, but there was one of the brothers, Jotham, escapes this slaughter that Abimelech goes and attempts to, to do to all of his family, all of his relatives, so that he doesn't have anyone competing for the throne. And at Jotham, what he does, he, as the only survivor, he escapes to safety, he hides out. What's really crazy is whereas Abimelech's name means my father is king, Jotham's name means Yahweh is perfect. It's an amazing contrast to see what's happening in this text. The author is using these two characters as the hero and the anti-hero. That, that even, even though in the midst of this very dark period in the history of Israel, in the book of Judges, there's at least a remnant. There's somebody there that is faithful. There's somebody there that is still after Yahweh, that is still after true worship of the true God. And what he does is he ends up, he said, it tells us, I'll just summarize it for us, but he tells us, he goes to the top of Mount Gerizim and then he tells a parable to the whole city, everybody in the city of Shechem. Now, what's really interesting about this, I'm gonna show you a picture. It's gonna be up on your screen. But archeologically, they've actually found Shechem and it's a modern city too, it's inhabited today. But look at this, it's really interesting. They've actually tested the acoustics of this mountain 
Because sometimes you hear this, like you went up on the mountain and talked to the whole city. You're like, oh, that's Bible for impossible, right? But really this, this picture here, there's two mountains. There's a hill to the right that's just off, off the picture. But that main hill right there, it's not a mountain as much as it's just a big hill. Um, but right there, they've actually tested the acoustics. If you stand near the top of that hill and you project your voice, it goes across the city and it ricochets off the other hill and it comes back and it almost creates an amphitheater. So there's like this nature's microphone right there. So it's kind of just cool to see archaeologically some of the things that come and support some of this, where Jotham stands up there and tells this parable to the whole city to make sure. I mean, he didn't have YouTube, right? He didn't have a microphone. Uh, but there was still that opportunity to have this widespread announcement of what God needed to say to Israel at the time of Abimelech. And the parable he tells, and this could be a whole sermon on its, on its own, but the parable that he tells, he tells a, a parable about the trees. He says, so the trees one day wanted to appoint a king over them, right? And, then, and it gives a couple examples. And they go to the olive tree and they say, hey, olive tree, will you be our king? And then it goes to the fig tree. And then, then they go to the vines, uh, to, the, to the grape vines and said, would you be our, our king? And they all say no. And what's interesting about all three of those symbols, they're very, very familiar. Jesus actually tells parables using all three of those different agricultural symbols. And the olive tree was just, it's big, right? The olive tree was huge. Uh, it started very small and it grew very big and it symbolized abundance. The fig tree symbolized safety and security and stability. And if you remember, it also had this kind of flip side of shame, whereas it, Adam and Eve in the garden, what do they cover themselves with? Well, fig leaves. And then vines, obviously fruitfulness and celebration and luxury, right? So these, these are the things that they're like, no, no, like th th that should be our king. And it's funny because it sets you up for like, that's the stuff that we really want. We want all that. That sounds really good. And then all of these trees say, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna reign over you. And instead the thorn bush, so this prickly thorn brush is like, I'll be your king, right? Come on, I'll, I'll, I'll be your king. And the people are like, that sounds great. Come and be our king. And then thorn bush stands up and he says, come take refuge under my shade, right? Which is hilarious because thorn bushes don't have shade. Um, and these types of thorn bushes actually only grew to like two feet tall. And they were only really good for fire. Like that was literally it. It's like, well, let's just put them on fire because they can't really do anything. They don't give us anything good except fire, which is good. So let's use it for fire. And so there's a lot of sarcasm. There's a lot of imagery here showing us that this is making a caricature of Ab Abimelech saying, this is the guy? Like this is the guy you chose. Like this thorn bush. This guy who really, he's just use, useful for being burned up. And that's exactly what happens in the story. And Jotham finishes the parable and he says, I hope you if, you, if you follow after this guy, I hope you burn each other to the ground. <laughs> that's what he says. He's like, I hope you just set each other on fire. I hope you are each other's worst enemies and you just turn inward on yourself and experience self-destruction like no other because we're not about that. We're gonna follow the Lord, right? So it's a very strong, very, very, pointed parable that Jotham tells, but we see the people do not listen, which is getting us back to the cycle of judges. They still do not listen. And this thorn bush, okay, again is a hyperlink for us, a very strong one, a very clear one, back to the garden. Where if you remember thorn and the thorns and thistles was a part of the emblem, kind of the, the trophy, the bad one, the bad trophy of Adam's curse where God says to him, now there will be thorns and thistles that will work against you. Whereas you were created to be fruitful and multiply and actually have dominion over creation. Now creation itself will be an impediment to you. It'll actually work against you. And what's really wild about this is that you crazy fast forward to the end, to the gospels. And we see that Jesus on the cross, we see a reverse of the curse of Adam by Jesus being mocked as king, even though he is, and then being crowned with thorns only to actually raise as king to silence death and reverse the curse of the garden. So church, listen, this is where it's really important to know how to read our Bible, to look for these threads, these amazing threads that carry us through different books and different periods to bring us to the end of this story. And now we're on the other side of this story that we get to look back and we don't have to settle for thorn bushes and thistles, that we actually have an answer to suffering and pain and hurt and death and wicked leaders and nonsense and foolishness because we have it in Christ. And that's the good news here. 
So even in the bad news, in the darkest part of Israel's history, we have this thread of hope. We have God who's really the, the, the author of these stories the author behind history, who's writing himself into the pages of history to bring us to our true and eternal hope in in his incarnation. It's amazing, just amazing. And there's so many things in this text that do that for us, but we don't have time. So if you wanna talk to me this week, call me and I'll share all the nerdy stuff with you. Okay, and the story continues. Jotham tells this parable and it's amazing. And the people are like, nah. And then what happens is exactly what Jotham warmed them of. Exactly what he said. I hope you burn each other to the ground. That's exactly what happens. So at first the Shechemites are like, yeah, Abimelech, you're the man. We'll follow you. Let's do that. Then in the next scene of the story, we see the Shechemites themselves conspire to take Abimelech out. And it's really funny because they go and they make wine and then they have a huge bash and they all get wasted. And then they sit around and talk smack about Abimelech. And it's like, but I thought, I thought you were with him. Like I thought you were on his team, right? They're cut from the same cloth. This is like mafiosa uh, movie to, to the T, right? Where you end up destroying themselves from within, right? Conspiracy and rising up and jealousy and internal infighting, right? And that's, that's literally the point of the story is that the Shechemites and Abimelech, they deserved each other. They're like the match made in hell, right? They're cut from the same cloth and they are gonna burn each other to the ground. And that's exactly what happens. The Shechemites lead a resurgence against Abimelech they go and they decide that they'll ambush him. But Abimelech, of course, because he's, he's at least good at something, he meets that attack head on and he raises Shechem right to the ground and it, with fire, with fire and salt, leaves it as a desert wasteland. And it's very, very significant here because if you remember at the, at the beginning of Judges, what did God say they failed to do? They failed to get the people removed from the land. And now here's what's happening here. Instead of doing that to the people who were in the land, Israel is now doing this to themselves. The thing that they failed to do to the people in the land, they're actually doing it to each other. What the Lord called them to do to the Canaanites, they're instead doing to themselves. It's a complete inversion and reversal of God's call on the people of Israel. And that's exactly what we need to see about idolatry and compromise and sin in this book. It's when we fail to turn from sin fully and rip idols out of our life. That's that same sin and those same idols will ultimately turn on us and destroy us. If we are not killing sin, sin is going to come back and kill us. That's the strong warning of this passage. It's when we compromise, when we just kind of flirt a little bit. Well, that's not that. At least it's not this. Like, oh, I could be worse. I could be doing that. It's when we do that, that ultimately those things grow. They fester. It's the things that we don't cut out entirely that come back and disease us to the core of who we are. And it's so significant here to see just the self-destruction and the turning inward of the self throughout the book of Judges that's happening in the people of Israel. And this siege on Shechem finishes and and Abimelech goes and he attacks. It's like the last bit of citizens hiding away. The city is completely demolished and they're hiding out in a tower. And watch what happens as this battle comes to an end. Verse 53. And an unnamed woman threw a millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Okay, so he threw it out of her window. Then he called quickly to the young man. So he survived, he didn't die. He called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, just his buddy, his, other, his fellow soldier and said, draw your sword and kill me. Lest they say of me that a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone went home. Like, like what? Thus God returned, here's the conclusion. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his own father in killing his brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their own heads. See the play of, play, play of words there. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Gideon, Jeroboam. So if you see the echoes of what happened a few chapters earlier in the tent with JL, we see here that an unnamed woman throws a millstone out her window. Like you gotta understand as a woman, that's your livelihood. 
That's like your kitchen appliances at the time, right? She's willing to, to stake everything on ruining this fool and getting him out of the picture, right? And if you notice, Abimelech is only concerned with his reputation right to the, his last breath. No sense of repentance, no sense of humility whatsoever. His very last breath is spent trying to save face so that he would be remembered as somebody who wasn't killed by a non-warrior. And it's not actually about it being a woman there. It's about it being a non-warrior. That that was so like dishonorable to die as, as a self-appointed king and, and soldier, right? And he was killed by a household appliance, okay? So again, it just ends in complete shame and, and utter silliness, right? And what's so crazy about this, if you notice, okay? This is the only time that God is mentioned at all, in chapters eight through 10. And what's very interesting is that his personal covenant name isn't used, period. So God's personal name, Yahweh, is not used at all in these chapters. God is, they mention God at the end here because what we see is he's still ultimately orchestrating all of this. He's still allowing kind of this turning inward of the self to happen. And he's orchestrating and pulling the strings because he is sovereign over humanity and history. But he's allowing a working out of the own devices of somebody like Abimelech and Israel. But God's personal name is not used even once. He is completely absent from Israel's life at this point in Judges. And that is the tragedy. That's what we have to see here. Because this is also a picture of you and me without God. And I'm not talking the general spiritual floating thing that we have in our culture of like God, everyone loves God, everyone believes in God, but a personal, nameable, knowable God, a God whose character and heart is made revealed in history and in the pages of scripture, a God who actually does something about what he says, not a God who just sits back and floats around and allows anything and everything to pass as worship of him, but a God who is actually revealed, knowable, and nameable. And this is a picture of us without that God. But even though God is completely absent from this, we see that he's actually present. And that's what's crazy, that he's actually behind the scenes. Because we saw a little bit earlier that God himself sends a spirit of distress to mess with the Shechemites and Abimelech. And right here, we see that God is the one that put an end to Abimelech. It's very, very important to hear that because it's when we experience God's supposed silence in our life, church, it doesn't mean he's absent. It doesn't mean he's absent. He is not slow to fulfill his purposes. And I think this story is told at such a fast, dizzying pace, but then like this slowing down because it creates tension. Because in the story, you're like, when is God gonna do something? Like, when is God gonna squash this fool? And then finally he does. And so we have to understand that, that in the midst of things, in the midst of trials and suffering and things that are just tense and things that we don't understand, God is not slow to fulfill his promises. And because we think that he may be silent, it doesn't mean that he's absent. And even in a dark story like this, God is right there. The people don't wanna acknowledge that he is. The people don't wanna worship him for who he is, but it doesn't change the fact that he is very much present in this. And he's very much present and still maintaining justice in a time where the people are just running amok with injustice. And that God is, is, is always righteous, that always perfect, always true, as we see in the name like Jotham. Now, what was the conclusion of the story here? How does this end? Well, it's a train wreck. The conclusion of the story is that God actually returns the evil that Abimelech um, did on his own head, literally and figuratively. And we see that stressed in the next chapter, which is gonna be unpacked more next week. But in the next chapter, in chapter 10, verse 13 to 14, watch this reflection of this. Where God actually says, you have forsaken me and you've served other gods. That's not new, right? We've seen that. But watch this. Therefore, I will not save you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. What's really crazy about those verses is that we see, whereas they first just turned to Baal, they've now started worshiping any and every God. And a few verses before that, in chapter 10, it lists seven main false gods. And seven is always a significant number in scripture of completeness, of wholeness. The author's point here is that our, their idolatry is now full. 
Their idolatry has now come full circle. Their compromise and the Canaanization of Israel is now complete. And rather than drive people out of the land, Israel is now indistinguishable from the people of the land. And it's not just Baal that they flirted with, it's that they fully just accepted any God. And rather than worship the one true God and no other gods, which is the first commandment, they've entirely replaced that and worshiped any God except the true God. And so we see this crazy idolatry that has just grown in the heart of Israel over, the, over this text. And we get to this climactic moment where God says, listen, I told you, have no other God before me, yet you've put everything else before me. Therefore, I will not save you anymore. I won't rescue you anymore. Go and call out to the things that you think will deliver you. Go and live for all of the things that you think will free you, that you think will fulfill you, that you think will make you happy. Go, you're free, go and do it. But we see that that freedom is not free at all, that that's slavery. And God here, this is a retributive principle. This is retribution. This is a passive act of judgment where God is saying, listen, I've done everything I can to pursue you and woo you and change you and rescue you and love you and then command you on how to live within the confines of my love and you have done everything to resist me. Everything. So go. Go ahead. Go cry out to those gods and see what they do. Go cry out to those gods and see if they answer you. Go and cry out to those things that can't give you life and see if they truly give you life. And if you remember the question that I asked in the very first sermon of this series, Judges kind of sits and hangs this question over our head throughout this book and says, is Israel really any different than the nations? We finally get the answer and the answer is emphatically, no, they're not any different. And that's the problem. So what do we see here? Well, we see the main point of this text is that the greatest threat to Israel's freedom, and we need to hear this, the greatest threat to Israel's freedom as a people is not out there, it's in here. And church, it's no different for us. The more that we posture to fight everything out there is the more that we will be blind to the issues in here, in the people of God, in the churches, amongst brothers and sisters. The more that we spend our energy criticizing and critiquing the world for being the world and not looking at our own life, not digging deep into our own heart to see what idols may be hiding in here, to see what kind of self-centeredness might be hiding in me, in me and in you, then we are just as susceptible to this deception just as susceptible to go and fight all of these battles, to go and fight against all of these things and still not actually experience life. And that's the danger here, that Israel still thinks that their biggest problem is out there and they forgot what they let in the back door. And that thing that that little, little cute, little lion cub that they decided was their pet grows and grows and grows and then claws their face off, which by the way is what happens every time, right? And we see this happen. It's like, the, oh, my pet gorilla, he was so cute at first and then it ripped my face off. It's like, because it's a gorilla, right? And we do this, we flirt with sin and we, we just kind of like, oh yeah, well just, no, that's not that bad or no, I, I'll just, and then, and then it just grows and it grows and it grows and it completely overtakes us. So this, this preaches, <laughs> this text preaches not about everything out there, but everything in here. And the main idea of this text, it's not, it's not a, this story of Abimelech is not a criticism of even, even kingship. It's not a criticism of the monarchy, but it is a harsh criticism of any kind of kingship that dethrones God's rule over Israel. And that's exactly what the author of Judges is getting Israel to reflect on. It's like, no, no, God, God, God said you can have a king, but we just made these kings in our image and they crushed us. Hence God saying, I will no longer save you. And what's crazy about this is that he doesn't. The rest of the book of Judges, he doesn't deliver them anymore. He doesn't raise up any more judges the way that he has in the first nine chapters. He protects them, he does. So we see like this crazy long suffering patience and love of God. He still, he still protects them. He still raises up a couple judges, but not as deliverers like we've seen. He doesn't rescue them anymore. 
He allows them just to run to the end of themselves. He allows them to make their bed and then lie in it. And that's exactly what's happening here. This divine passive judgment. And notice we don't see any active wrath here. Like it doesn't say the angel of the Lord showed up and grabbed the millstone and smashed it on Abimelech's head, right? Like the, God is not actively doing this, but he is passively allowing it. We don't see any raining down of fire. We don't see earthquakes. We don't see any divine acts of judgment happening here. But what we do see is God's strategic withdrawal from his people so that he can hand them over to what they think they want. And we have to hear that because we see it everywhere in scripture. This retribution, this retributive principle, we see it everywhere. And we gotta be really careful today because we love to just forget this because we just kind of like domesticate God and turn him into like, I don't know, like a unicorn with rainbows coming out of his stomach and just all love, only love all the time. And then we define love however we want as just like warm tingles. It's like, no, no, but God's not playing around. Like, like we can't domesticate God and then be like, yeah, that sounds good. God tells us who he is. God tells us what he's like. We don't tell God what he's like. We don't define God's love. God defines his love, right? And right here, look, look at this, all over scripture, Psalm 81, 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels, to go after their own advice. Romans 1, Paul picks this up. God gives us over to the lusts of our what? Heart. Notice heart coming up here. Ezekiel 14 is probably one of my favorite examples of this. And remember Ezekiel also wrote during the exile. So Ezekiel as a prophet, he's also trying to make sense of how we got there, right? How Israel got there. Here's what he says in Ezekiel 14. It's not gonna be up on the screen, just listen. The leaders of Israel have set up idols in their, where? Hearts. Why should I listen to them? So I, the Lord, I will give them the kind of answer that their idolatry deserves. I will do this to capture the minds and hearts of all my people who have turned from me to worship useless idols. Notice, in all of those texts, the problem is not out there. It is here. All of that. It's not idols out there. It's, it's not, it's not beha behaviors I'm doing. It's not, it's not what other people are doing. It's not what the world is like. It's not what our politicians are doing. It's none of that. It's our heart. It's idols in our heart. And then we go and we, we create our communities and our cultures and our society based on the things that are just embedded and buried in our heart. The problem is in here. The problem is right here. And Jesus picks that up and says, you know where everything that's garbage comes from? Your heart and mine. Lust and murder and greed and selfishness. It's not out there. You can fix out here all you want. You can, you can cosmetically fix yourself up all you want. But and, and all of those efforts, all of the behavior modification, all of the religiosity, all of the look how great I am, give me accolades, all of that doesn't matter because that cannot change our heart. And we have to get back to this. We have to understand true worship and come back to the heart of worship. True worship is actually starting with us, like our heart, not out there, not you, not me, not our church, not politics, not culture, none of that, but our heart right here. Why did I behave that way? Why did I respond that way? Why was I so angry about that? Why, why am I doing this? Why do I keep like meandering into that nonsense? Why do I keep doing like, that's where the true Christian life starts. That's where the gospel does its work of transformation and renewal. And all throughout the Bible, the heart is not just emotions. We gotta get past that. Heart is like the central headquarters that make you who you are. Your heart is who you are. It's your identity. It's why you do what you do. It's why you think what you think. It's what you look to, to define you and tell you who you are and to give you meaning. That's what your heart does. And theologians for centuries have said that our heart actually like creates idols, just manufactures idols. It's an it's a idol factory. Nothing out there it even needs to happen. Our heart does it for us. Left on its own, in its own devices, without the prov providential grace and love of God, our hearts just suggest tons of stuff that we should worship. Just, just, that's just the brokenness of our flesh. That is the curse of sin is that your heart and mine are just gonna continue to manufacture things that we should live for. Ah, just do that. Just listen to your heart. Just go after this. Just do you. Just live your life. Live your truth. Nonsense that ultimately leads us to exactly where we are today. 
Like, like you want to see why our culture is the way it is? It's because of this. It's this. And the Bible has so many countercultural things to say about our heart. But we just go and click on Instagram and post nonsense. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that everything his heart desired was continuously wicked. Imagine if we said that, put that on a coffee mug. Retweet that for your self-esteem, that your heart is just continuously wicked. Church, you imagine we actually live like that though? Like really though, this is like the redeemable part of this. Imagine if that's the posture we lived with. Imagine how different we'd be. Imagine how different we'd treat each other. Imagine how few arguments would actually happen. Imagine how little we would actually attack each other. If we started with, wait, what if this is more about me than it is about them? What if this is more about me than it is about all of, all of that happening out there? What, what can I learn about, about what's happening in me when, when that happens or when I feel like that about that or whatever it is? Like you imagine the posture that we could have in a culture that is so given over to their own hearts. Jeremiah 17, nine, talking about countercultural says that the heart is deceitful above all things. <laughs> it's twisted like a bad road. That's what it means in Hebrew. It's aimless, it's wandering, and it's desperately sick. And in Hebrew, that means medically incurable. You can't cure it. We can't, but God can. And one of the most loving things that God can do, church, is to hand us over to the things that we think is gonna free us and satisfy us. And that's exactly what we see happening in this text. Our hearts dupe us every day into believing that money, materialism, that lifestyle, that standard of living, that government, that education, that romantic relationship, that house, that church, that all of that will fix us. Our hearts dupe us into all of that every day that that will fix us. Those things will fix us. Those things will free us. Those things will heal the pain. But our main problem isn't around us. It's within us. And the gospel is so radically different than the teleprompter of our culture, that church, if we are not taking an intake, a diet, like a, a really strong diet of what the word says about our heart, we are just gonna continue to believe the teleprompter and read it as if it is true. And as if it will actually heal us. Whereas culture says, you can do anything you put your mind to. Self-empowerment. Jesus shows up and says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Whereas culture shows up and says, be yourself. Just be yourself. Autonomous self, follow your heart. Jesus says, die to self and follow me because your heart is deceitful and sick. Culture shows up and churches and says, you are enough. Love that, you're enough. Jesus shows up and says, my grace is enough. You're weak, let me be strong. Whereas culture shows up and says, I'm strong, I'm rich, I'm healthy. Like Oprah makes you say that, like out loud. That's the mantra. Jesus says, I, but I didn't come for the, the strong, the rich, and the healthy. <laughs> I came for the weak, the poor, the sick, the broken. I came for not everybody who thinks they're healthy and doesn't need anything, but everybody who knows they're not and needs a savior. Jared Wilson um, sums it up well. He says this, our hearts are desperate for a king. We will make an idol of nearly everything. <laughs> and indeed, the abundance of possessions and the security of comfort and the assumption of God's favor for our self-righteousness, ooh, that hits hard, are the most common of our idols. But God's gifts are good gifts and terrible gods. I think that is the story of Judges writ large. Judges showcases this exact condition in the human heart. And we just, you know, you see it throughout the pages of scripture where sin enters the picture. Freedom from God is what we think we want and that leads to slavery. We think that that's gonna free us, but we end up more enslaved. And then God frees humanity, rescues them from idols, rescues them from the powers that be, and then teaches them how to live. And then they demand a human king, <laughs> right? They, they appoint human kings instead of God. They choose self-rule over God's rule. And in the process of this, we see that sin ultimately, and you've heard me say this before, sin ultimately in small ways and big ways dethrones God and enthrones self. And in that tragic exchange, it devalues both God and self. This is our core problem. We have a dysfunctional relationship with authority. We wanna be the sovereign of our life. We wanna be the master of our fate. 
And this cosmic authority problem shows up page after page after page, century after century after century. And I wanna read one more text from Ezekiel that kind of points us forward and then we're done. But Ezekiel, writing during the exile, prophesies and promises this for the future. And church, be hopeful because this is what we're on the other side of. So with all that idolatry in their heart, Ezekiel says to Israel, God speaks through Ezekiel and says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I love how much that passage stresses that this is not something you can do. It's not something that I can do, but it is only something that God can do. And this is a daily thing. This isn't like, oh, I got saved at summer camp or I said a prayer once and I got baptized. This is a daily thing because your heart is fighting against this. Your heart is telling you that you can do it. That you just got, well, just pray like this, read like this, believe like this, follow these guys online, do this. Like that, that's what's gonna do it for you. And God shows up and says, no, no, but I'll do it. That's the gospel. Like only I can do it. And what's really wild about this text in Ezekiel in particular is that when he talks about sprinkling clean water, often we just kind of think like, oh yeah, like purification, cleaning up of, of the ritual. Like when you look at the ritual system, you gotta be clean before you enter the presence of God. It is that, but the specific type of uh, Hebrew sacrifice and ritual that's being used in that throws us back to the law that specifically talks about being cleansed because of coming into contact with a dead body. And the point of this is, I, only God, only God can come and rescue us from the idols that promise life, but ultimately disappoint and lead to destruction and death. That we're running after lifeless things, that we're impure because we go after those things to give us life. And God shows up and says, no, no, only I can clean you from that. And it doesn't happen out here first. It happens right here. And Jesus obviously picks this up, right? Jesus picks this up in John 3 and says, unless you are born of water and spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a change from the inside out. This is a, a, a being reborn, a new birth, a new creation. This isn't behavior modification of what you're doing or not doing, but it is a heart change of what you even want to do. It's something so deep that changes our affections, our desires. And we're, whereas I, idols and idolatry destroys us from the inside out, Christ is saying, I renew you from the inside out. I clean you from the inside out. I make you a new creation from the inside out. And this cosmic authority problem that we see, the anti-heroes all across the Bible, like Abimelech, show us that we are our own anti-hero. And ultimately it brings us to our greatest need of the true hero, the true judge of the book of Judges, the true hero that can rescue us. And when Jesus comes on the scene and shows up in the flesh, Israel doesn't have a king and they haven't had a kingdom for 600 years. And the Jews are struggling and they're lost and they're bewildered and they're waiting for the king. And all four gospel biographies stress this, that Jesus doesn't just show up as a teacher, doesn't just show up as a rabbi, doesn't just show up as a helpful whatever he is, but he shows up as the king. But he completely rewrites what that means. <laughs> he completely rewrites Israel's expectation of kingship. It's not a nationalistic kingship. It's not a militaristic kingship. It's not an ethnocentric kingship. And it's not a political kingship. It's not after the power here because he already has all power everywhere. Like you understand that, that true power doesn't have to grasp for power. That, 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 that means you're not powerful if you actually have to go after and grope for power. And that's the posture that Jesus has because he already is king. He's king over everything. He doesn't come and force his subjects into submission. He comes and serves and gives his life as a ransom for his people. And he invites everybody into that upside downness, that crazy radical strangeness of a kingdom of mercy and grace, not of force, but of mercy. So Jesus, who's, who's already somebody, makes himself nobody so that you and I, as nobodies, <laughs> can be renamed and become somebody in him. And honestly, it's simultaneously revolutionary in Jesus's day and ridiculous because that's not what kings do. But if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart 
not in conduct, not in beliefs, but the pure in heart. What happens when we're pure in heart? He says that we will see God. He doesn't start with doing and believing. He starts with desiring. He starts with wanting. To be pure in heart, I think, what Jesus is getting at there is to actually keep the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord our, your God with all of your heart, <laughs> mind, soul, strength. And rather than come and sit on a throne, Jesus gets off his throne and he hangs on a cross. He takes his crown off that's rightfully his and he exchanges it with a crown of thorns. And rather than come and demand service from his subjects to prove his power, he lays his life and power down to empower all of us as we go after him, follow after him and trust him. And whereas Abimelech here sacrifices his own brothers and sisters and his own people for his own position of power, Jesus comes and lays down his position and power to sacrifice himself to come and rescue all his brothers and sisters. And church, that's you and I. Imagine how differently we would think and live and desire. Imagine how differently we would interact. Imagine how differently we would spend our time and our money and our energy. Imagine how differently we would interact with, with our internet and our social media platforms. Imagine it would change everything if we actually had a posture of our main issue isn't out there, but it's in here. I'll leave you with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers of all time in the previous century said, the gospel not only tells us that all these problems arise out of the heart, but they do so because of the heart. That's really important. Our troubles are at the very center of our being so that merely to develop our intellect is not going to solve our problems. Join me as I pray for us to that end. Gracious God, we, uh, we need more. We, we need more and we want more. We want more of you. We don't wanna settle for temporary or momentary fixes. We want a deep heart change that changes so radically the very direction of our life because it changes what we want. And I pray for each of us that Jesus, you would be at the center of that that there's just so much going on right now. There's so many different things that could take our energy that we could think about and give ourselves to and so many things that really we could still just, I mean, argue about and talk about and have tension over. But I just pray for unity even in that as we wrestle. We wrestle through important things together that, that our posture would be one that would be changed so radically by the gospel that we would really truly live with this posture of our main issue is, is first and foremost in here. It's not out there. It's not my spouse. It's not my friends. It's not, not this church. It's not the, the politicians. It's not the culture, but it's right here. And that, Lord, we would live with that trajectory, that we would go out into a broken world, into, out into broken systems, out into a broken culture, out into broken relationships, and that we would be agents of change and renewal because you start in us. So today, if, if nothing else, I pray that each of us, as brothers and sisters, we would be able to come to this text, come away, and that in our response, we would, we would truly examine our heart and that spirit, you would illuminate our heart to things that we have not seen or, or things that we have just ignored, things that we have just drowned out with the noise and the busyness and the scrolling and the clicking and the binging, and that we would have a moment of clarity, that you would illuminate our heart about what we need most and where we need it most. So we come and actually present ourselves as a living sacrifice to you this morning. We pray that you would change us and renew us from the inside out so that, Lord, we would see people on, on the outside come and meet you and know you and be changed by you forever. We ask all these things for your glory, for your fame, and in your name. Amen.